Mommy got me new paints. My sister Carla said I could paint all her toenails and fingernails. So I painted each one a different color. But then I guess she got bored because she fell asleep. So I painted her arms and legs too. <laughs> then Mommy went shopping. She left me to babysit my baby brother Herschel. Herschel has measles. He has little tiny red polka dots all over his body. So I took my tiniest brush, dipped in red paint, and connected all his dots. Hmm. And now I think I'm going to practice my spelling on the wall. Let's see. I think I'll write my friends' names. There's Freddie and Susie and Christopher. Oh, hello, Mommy. No, I'm not painting the wall. I know you told me to wear my smock, but I, I didn't get no paint on my clothes. Mommy, if I told you I painted the wall, would you spank me? You would? The, the Freddy did it. God will get you for that. Huh? Dad, uh, you're still up? It's not past 12, is it? Oh, it's 4.30. Uh, I can explain. We went bowling. Yes, until 4.30. Uh, we bowled like 10 games. The automatic uh, pin setter broke, so we had to set up all the pins up by hand. No good, huh? Well, can't win them all. Good night, Dad. What? You found some kind of pills in my dresser drawer? Dad, are you accusing me of taking drugs? Let me see those. These are Tic Tacs. Good night, Dad. Uh, what now? Well, I don't know, Dad. You tell me. What does my breath smell like? Uh, that's what the Tic Tacs are for. <laughs> Look, Dad, I only have one beer. May I be excused now? You got a call from Mrs. Johnson? No, we didn't throw eggs at her house. <laughs> her car, yes, her house, no. <laughs> Dad, quit yelling at me. You always do this. Look, I just want to have one good night with my friends. Is that too much that I'm grounded? Really? Two months confinement to my room, but nothing but bread and water. Really? Like, that's so unfair. Look, it's... Dad, are you sure you're not overreacting to the tension of the moment? All right, Dad, all right. Good night. Man. God will get you for that. Whatever. Ah, good morning, Sylvia. How are you doing this morning? That's great. Look, I have to leave for the golf course now, so if my wife calls, tell her 
I can't have lunch with her because I'm in a meeting with my boss, okay? Oh, and if the boss calls, tell him I'm out with TJ Williams. He's one of our biggest clients. And if TJ Williams calls, tell him I will get back to him later because I'm having lunch with my wife. Clever, huh? No, 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 Sylvia. I'm not asking you to lie for me. As your boss, I'm ordering you to lie for me. Look, I know this is the fourth time this week I've broken a lunch date with my wife, but it's just as well she could stand to lose a few pounds. What now? You want two weeks off in August? What are for? <sighs> no, Sylvia, just have your baby on her own time, not mine. God will get you uh, for No, no, don't, don't say it, okay? Look, I'll be good from now on, okay? Just, just here. Uh, Sylvia, look, I've, I've reconsidered. Uh, you can have two weeks off in August. In fact, you can have two months in August. Well, okay, how about this? Uh, Sylvia, how about you take the rest of the day off with pay? I'll write my own memos, I'll take my own phone calls, I'll even get my own coffee. But I'm trying. God will get you for that. God will get you for that. God will get God you for that. God will get you for that. God will get you for that. God will get you for that. All right, all right, I can't take it anymore. God, if you're going to get me, get me now. Send down your lightning bolts. Cook me in fire and brimstone stew. I deserve it. Come on, God, what's taking you so long? Come on, I'm a groveling bullseye, waiting for your flaming arrows of justice. Well, if you don't destroy me, then tell your messengers to... They're gone? But I thought you wanted them here. What's this? Wow, this is one really clean slate. <laughs> Not a scratch on it either. It's, who does it belong to, Mother Teresa? <laughs> Wait a minute, this, this has my name on it. Well, that can't be right. Mine has thousands of marks on it. I, I, I've let people, I've let you down every day of my life. It's like your messenger said, you're going to, Oh, that's right. Well, obviously somebody else cleaned this up for me. Did a good job, too. Not a streak on it. Are you sure this is mine? This isn't what I expected from you, God. And to think, I've been running away from you all my life. God will get you for that. Well, I guess in a way, he kind of did. You probably want me to say something profound now. Um, how about... Thanks. Most of us live with a keen awareness of our guilt and our shame. 
And we forget that we can have a clean slate too. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for sending Jesus for us, for making it way possible for us to experience not only uh, freedom, but to guilt-free, Lord, that we can live in you and in Jesus, know the, the life that you meant for us to live. And I pray this morning that if there's someone here and they've not yet begun that life as a Christ follower today, you show them what that means. I pray for us who have made that decision already, and yet we carry guilt and shame, Lord, that you'd show us today what it means to live with a clean slate, how you take us, Lord, from whatever we've been, and you create in us new life. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of us, most of us really are uh, very much aware of our guilt, of our shame, of the things we've messed up, and we live in fear. We do. A lot of us live in fear. I talk to people all the time. We we'll live with this dread that God's just waiting to smack them, to get them, to take them out. And tragically, what we've not known, if we've not experienced it yet, or maybe we have experienced it, but we've too easily forgotten, is the redemptive nature of God. That God specializes in taking messed up, broken people, lives that are filled with all sorts of marks and not so pretty of uh, history, and he redeems, he restores, he renews. You see, in Jesus, we can live free from guilt and shame. And I know if you've been around church for any length of time, that's old news for you. But I want to encourage you today to embrace this again as the best news in the world. It is the good news that in and through relationship with Jesus, we can live, not just be once upon a time, but live totally forgiven. Because of what he did on the cross, we can have our slate made completely clean, and we can live that way, clean of every sin we've ever committed. The prophet Isaiah uh, wrote these words to the children of Israel when they were messed up and far from God. And he spoke prophetically for God. And he said this in Isaiah 1.18. Come now. Come let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as wool. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be as wool. Isaiah pleads with the Israelites. And he speaks on God's behalf. And he says, I know how messed up you are. I know how tainted and, and sinful you are. But God says, come to me, and I can make that clean. We really can have and live with a clean slate. And if you're here today and you're wrestling with guilt and shame, my prayer for you is that you'll leave here forgiven and free. And those are two very powerful words, forgiven and free. We're going to be in the Old Testament book of Joshua this morning. And if you've got your Bible, I encourage you to turn to Joshua. Uh, it's the sixth book in the Old Testament. It's right after Deuteronomy. Joshua uh, is right before the book of Judges. So it's Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. It's in there. And while you're looking for that, let me give you a little background to the story that we're going to read this morning. And I love this. It's one of the, the uh, most powerful stories of redemption that you'll find in the Old Testament. In this story, though, Joshua has just become the leader of the Israelites. If you've read the Old Testament story in Exodus, you know the Israelites were set free. Moses came, miraculously was used by God to deliver them from Egypt. They, they cross into a, the wilderness. They're going to go into the promised land, a land that God said, I'm going to give to you and to all, your, to, to all who follow after you. And, and they uh, sent 12 spies into the land. Moses did. Ten came back and said, no way, not going to happen. We can't do it. They're, they're big, ugly, mean people over there. Two of the spies, one of them happened to be Joshua, said, no, we can do this. Well, God was not pleased with the Israelites. And they disobeyed. They didn't believe. And so he said, well, for 40 years, you're going to wander around. And uh, I'm going to wait till this generation, the, that generation that was set free from Egypt, dies off, and I'll take the next generation into the promised land. Forty years have gone by. They've wandered the wilderness. They're now getting ready to enter into what the, they, they refer to as the promised land because God has said, I'm going to give it to you. They're uh, on one side of the Jordan. They're crossing over into uh, the, the other side. And Joshua is now their new leader, Moses. 
has died. And the first chapter of Joshua, I love that chapter because four times uh, he's admonished and encouraged to stay strong and courageous, to be strong and courageous. Uh, following a after Moses as a great leader, following his footsteps would be tough. Taking these people into the promised land, which, by the way, they had to go and do battle there. It wasn't as if God did everything for them. He did a lot and miraculously did amazing things. But they still had to go and take possession, still had to go in and fight and do warfare and battle and, and uh, deal with the people who were inhabiting that land. And so Joshua decides to send a couple of spies to check out things and to get a report. And we pick it up, Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent spies from Shittim. Got to be careful how you pronounce that word. From Shittim, go, he said, look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Now, we are not told how they ended up in her house. Uh, there's no suggestion here that they ended up there as customers. They didn't go to this house of, of, of ill repute, of Rahab's house, probably to have sex with her, but because it would not have been unusual for strangers or foreigners to go to her, her house, which was probably an inn of some sort. And they go there uh, to, to uh, find some uh, place to, to hang out. And it probably would have been a good place to get some information. They went there to spy out Jericho. So it might have been a good place for them to gather some information as well. Verse 2, the king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the land. So their attempt to go unnoticed, uh, got Somebody rag, you know, told, told what was going on, told the king. Uh, verse 4 says, but the woman, and again, this is Rahab, had taken the two men and, and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they'd come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch after them. Verse 6 gives us this insight. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under stalks of flax that she had laid on the roof. Verse 7. So the men set out in pursuit, the king's men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Now the fords of Jordan uh, just meant the narrow uh, and the uh, lowlands, basically where they could have waded across. The Jordan River is pretty big. They didn't have bridges back then. And this was an area where it would have been shallow enough for, the, for them to cross over and to get through the river. And so that's where they thought these spies would have gone taken off to. That's where they went to look. Verse 8, before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know, now listen carefully to what she says to these guys, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the, reed, the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds, but the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sion and Og. And the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. She's referring to something that happened decades before this. She says, we've heard about you guys. We know. Verse 11, when we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord, your God, is God in heaven above and on earth below. She's, she recognizes here something powerful. In fact, she truly begins, I think, right here, her journey of faith in Yahweh, in Jehovah. For the Lord your God is God in heaven and above, above and on earth below. Verse 12. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, that you will save us from death. 
Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell uh, what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. Now what's interesting here is that the Lord had made it very clear that they were to go dis dispossess and destroy everything and everybody in the land. But Rahab is, is made an exception here because of her faith in God. Verse 15, so she let them down by a rope through the window for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. Archaeologists have gone and studied this. In fact, back in 1907, 1909 was the first excavations by a German team. And it's really cool when you read that what happened is they found a few things here. First, they found out that Jericho was a city that had an outer wall and an inner wall and homes in between, as in like Rahab. They assumed based on what they found there that it was probably homes of poor people, but there's an outer wall, there were some homes, there's an inner wall, and people lived in these homes, and they weren't real comfortable, not the best places in town. But the other thing they discovered, these German excavators, is that there was a portion of the wall that was that left standing. That the entire wall had collapsed except one portion. And I want to suggest to you, we don't know for sure, but that it was Rahab's portion of the wall that actually didn't get destroyed. We read on in the story the Israelites had to march around the city for seven days, and the seventh day they did it seven times, and they yelled, you know, uh, the Lord is God, Jehovah is God, and at that, the old city wall, the, the walls of the city collapsed, and they just walked, mar marched in and, and destroyed everything. Well, she's in her home, and apparently there was a window on the outside wall. Uh, I, we don't know. It's speculation, but it could be that that was a wall, uh, a, a, a window in the wall used by some of her customers at times. The city gates are closed. They're going to get out, and so there's a way for them to, to exit. But anyhow, whatever it is, she left them down by rope through the window, the spies. For the house she lived in was part of the wall. Verse 16, she said to them, go to the hill so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves three days until they return, and then go your way. Now the men said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding to us unless when we enter the land you have uh, tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and unless you brought your father and mother, your brothers, and your family into the house. If any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on your heads and you will, be, will not be our respons responsibility. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on your head, uh, on our head, excuse me, if the hand is laid on them. Verse 20, but if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from our oath. You made us swear. Agreed, she said. And, she, and let us be on our way. So she sent them on their way, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. I love this story. I really do. I love this story of Rahab the prostitute who becomes a part of the history of God. In fact, by the time we get to Matthew chapter 1, we find out that Rahab is, uh, ends up in the lineage of Jesus. She's like the great-great-great-great-grandmother of Jesus. She actually is one of four women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. And that blows me away because it is this incredible story of redemption. God took this woman who was a not-so-cool cat, a prostitute, and he redeemed her life. So much so that she ends up in the very lineage of Jesus himself. So what are some lessons we can learn from this woman who started not so well as a prostitute but ends up in the very family of Jesus? A couple of things Number one, what can we learn from Rahab? Number one, with God, what matters most is not what you were, but who you are in Christ and what you are becoming in him. With God, in our relationship with him, what matters most is not what you were, and that's really good news, but who you are in Christ and what you are becoming. In other words, our past does not determine our future in Jesus. And trust me, that really is good news for all of us. Now, we might not have the raunchy past that Rahab had. 
We might not have been prostitutes or wars in our history, but you and I still have a tainted past. No matter who you are, we still have failed. We still have made plenty of mistakes along the way. There's still lots of marks on our slate from the time we were born, sin we've committed, and yet we see in this story that God doesn't care about her past. He cares about who she is and who she is becoming. What feels like a thousand years ago to me, Laura and I were talking about this not too long ago. Uh, we planted a church. We started a church in Tahunga, California. Anybody know where Tahunga is? It's a good place to be from. Let's just kind of leave it at that. Not a, a, a happening hot spot in Southern California. It's kind of a rough area. And we uh, lived there and, and planted a church, started a church in that community. And uh, I'm going to be honest with you, our, our little church drew broken people like dogs are drawn to litter box. And uh, I, if you don't know what that means, that's just as well, because it's really disgusting. But I, my point is that it, we had a lot of broken people drawn to our little motley crew, and one guy in particular who started coming to our church was a French-Canadian, and uh, found out uh, about a month or two into his, his uh, experience with us at our church that he actually had been a part of the Canadian mob. Now, I didn't even know the Canadians had a mob. Must have been a very liberal mob. But... But he, they had, he was in Toronto, he's French Canadian, he was actually part of the mob, and did uh, some really horrible things. Now, the cool news is, a friend brought this guy to our church, and this guy got saved at our little church, fell in love with Jesus and got saved there. But he still wrestled for a long time with guilt and shame, and he, he just couldn't get to, to the point where he truly believed that he had a new life and that his past was forgiven and, and forgotten by God. And I told him what I'm telling you. That in Jesus, what you are becoming is what matters, not what you were. It's not what you've done, but who you are and what you're becoming. I want you to listen to this passage from Titus chapter 3. Paul wrote, once we too were foolish and disobedient. We were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Been there, done that. Our lives were full of envy, uh, evil and envy, and we hated each other. Paul says we had all sorts of brokenness and broken relationships. Verse 4, love this verse, but... When God, our Savior, revealed his kindness and love, he saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins. Let those words sink in, guys. Jesus washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and a new life through the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul here is saying, once upon a time, we were broken, we were messed up, we were sinful, we were hopelessly lost, but what he says here is that's not the end of the story. That's not who we are anymore because of Jesus. Peter, who had failed miserably many times, was quite familiar, familiar with his own failure. He wrote this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10. He said, once you weren't a people, but now you are God's people. Once you hadn't received mercy, but now you have received mercy Peter, again, describes once upon a time we were far from God and we didn't belong to him. We didn't have a relationship with him and we were broken and messed up. But now we are in relationship. We have mercy and experience the mercy and the grace and the goodness of God. And what all this means for you and for me is that when we, get, we begin our relationship with Jesus or for those of us who walk in a relationship with him, we need to stop looking back with guilt and shame. The enemy loves to throw our past in our face. And we need to stop looking back with guilt and with shame. We need to stop believing that it's too late for God to use us. On, on many occasions, I've heard people say, well, I know God's forgiven me. 
And I know he loves me, but it's too late for me. I, I missed God's plan for my life. I'm never going to be able to fill in the blank, do what God might have wanted me to do at one point in, 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 for him. And we keep, keep looking back, and we believe it's too late for us, and we need to stop questioning that we deserve the grace and the mercy of God, his forgiveness. We need to stop questioning that. You know why? Because we don't. What? No, we don't. We don't deserve. No one does. It is a gift of God. Listen to verse 5 again from Titus 3. He saved us not, not because of the righteous things we had done, not because we finally figured out how to keep our nose out of trouble, not because we finally got it all right, but because of his mercy. He saved us. God took a woman named Rahab who quite possibly her name was, was, was uh, related to an Egyptian god, Ra. Quite possibly. We don't know for sure, but some speculate that her name even was derived from a false god. And she was an Amorite. She was a Canaanite. She belonged to a group of people who were, were horrible, did horrible things. The reason God said go in and destroy them all is because they were messed up and they were, they, he was afraid that they would taint his people, in which eventually that is what happened. But God took this woman who was a part of a group of people, idolatrous people, and he enfolded her into his people, into the Israelites. A prostitute. And by the way, an interesting note here is that there are two words in the Old Testament for the word prostitute. There's the word used for those who are actually prostitutes because they're part of the Canaanite temple. And believe it or not, they used to have prostitutes who served their gods and, and would sleep with people and collect money for that, and it was part of the temple worship. That's one word used in the Old Testament. The other word used for it in the Hebrew is the word zuna, and in the Greek it's the word porne. We get the word pornography, pornography from it. And the point in that is that no matter how you cut it, no matter what you want to say about her, no matter how you spell it, she was not even the religious good prostitute. She was a whore and a social outcast. But God saw what she could become. What I want you to see in this is that God saw what she would become in him. In fact, later, we find out later that she becomes the wife of Salmon, who uh, some speculate again was perhaps one of the two spies that protected her. And then I love this. And I don't know how familiar you are with Old Testament stories, but she becomes the mother, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the husband, excuse me, the wife of a guy named Boaz, a righteous guy named Boaz, and, 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 and who eventually becomes the, the, uh, the husband of Ruth. And it's a great story of redemption all throughout. This one-time harlot, what I want you to see today is this one-time harlot of Jericho, married into this family, of, a leading family of Israelites, and, and not only ends up being mentioned in the ancestry of Jesus, but she's one of only two women mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 as women of faith. Guys, that's grace. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. With God, what matters is not what you were, but who you are and who you are becoming in him. Here's the second lesson from Rahab. Number two, faith that pleases God is faith that is demonstrated. Faith that pleases God is faith that is demonstrated. I just took about 10 minutes to talk about the goodness and the grace and the kindness and the mercy of God and that he redeems us, restores us, does a miracle and takes people no matter who they are, what they've done, and he gives them a new life. But there is a response, a reasonable response on our part that we need to make to that. Rahab is a great example of someone who walked her talk. I mentioned Hebrews chapter 11. 
And it says that Rahab here in Hebrews eleven thirty one that by faith the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient and unbelieving. By faith, because she demonstrated it in doing the right thing by the spies, was not killed. Only one other woman is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. And if you've not read it in a while, I would encourage you to, to uh, read it sometime later this week. Or if you're really bored with me right now, read it now. It's a great chapter. And it is a, it's this chapter that, that chronicles, that lists all these great men of faith. And two women are mentioned. One of them is Sarah and the other. Sarah, the wife of Abraham, and the other is Rahab. She ends up listed in the greatest honor roll of all time in Hebrews 11. Why? Because she was a woman who demonstrated her faith. James wrote about her faith in James 2, 24 and 25. You see that a person is considered righteous, he said, by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did. Keyword: what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. Even James applauds the faith of Rahab. Now, let me be clear here. James is not suggesting that we earn our salvation by works. That is not what is suggested or taught here. But what he is saying, and it's clearly taught in the book of James, and what he's saying right here in James 2, 24 and 25, is that true faith is seen in our actions. When someone has a relationship with God, when someone walks in relationship with him, when we have been changed, converted, forgiven, whatever word you want to use, when that happens in us, then that faith will be demonstrated. It will be seen in our lives. Rahab was not honored just because of what she believed or because of what she said, but because of what she did. She protected the spies. She hid them. She gave them instructions, a way to, to make sure they could get back to their people, assisted them, and then she followed their instructions to the letter. Let me say it again. Faith that honors and pleases God is faith that is demonstrated. Why is this such a big deal? Why is this important? Well, personally, I'm going to tell you because it deeply concerns me that so many people in our country, in a good old U.S. of A, say they believe in God, and yet too many don't live like they do. So many. There's a Rasmussen report that was done in 2009 that said that 82% of Americans say they believe Jesus is the Son of God who came to earth to die for our sins. 82% according to this one report. Their report in 2012, just last year, said 79% of Americans believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I read that and I was just shocked. And my question is, how are their beliefs affecting their lives? This 82% or 79% who say they believe Jesus rose from the dead, how is that faith affecting the way they live? Another report by Random House said that 70, excuse me, 87% of Americans say they never doubt the existence of God. Does anybody find this shocking? I mean, amazing to me. And 44% of those said that, uh, Americans said that they believe that Jesus Christ will return in the next 50 years. And again, the question I have to ask is, are they living like it? Now, you can argue with the reliability of those polls and surveys and, and think, man, that's no way it's that many people. I mean, I don't know where they live. They don't live in Spokane. We can argue that. But even if they're 50% off and it's 44% and 39% that actually believe this, is that what we predominantly see and experience in our world, in, in the culture of America right now? Is it affecting the way we live? 
Rahab made a choice. She did. And it was based on what she believed. That's where it starts. Believe in your heart that Jesus is raised from the dead. I mean, that's where it starts. We believe. But that belief changed, listen to me, it changed everything about how she lived from that moment on. It changed everything. Her belief in God and that these, this was God's people, that the Lord God is Jehovah, that he's the Lord above all, uh, all gods. Her belief in that changed what she did, changed the way she lived. And so let me ask you, has your faith affected your choices in your life? And I'm not saying, asking that question to bring guilt or condemnation by any means. But sometimes we need to be prodded and provoked a little bit. And we need to wrestle through some things. How is my faith being represented? How is my faith being lived out in my life? In the way I talk. In the way I treat my spouse. In the way I treat my kids. In the way I serve God and serve my community. In the way I stand out as light in the midst of a very dark world. I had a conversation with a young man about eight or nine months ago. And uh, he came to me after service and said, I, 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 I'm not too happy. All right, what's going on? Well, I talked with one of your pastors, and he, and, said, and he really gave me a hard time about having sex with my girlfriend. And we want to get married, but he said, if East Point's going to marry us, that we need to stop having sex. And I just think that's stupid. And that's archaic. And I don't understand, you know, that's just way out of touch. And, 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 I, I, and I happen to know, know because I... I'd had this conversation with that pastor on our staff that he had explained to this young man very clearly from the scriptures that the Bible's clear on this issue. Now, I realize, and believe me, I know. In fact, I read an article about a month ago that said one of the major contributors to the fact that we are losing the 20-something generation, that they're leaving the church in droves, is because of this issue. Now, this is five things that the 20-somethings really struggle with in terms of the church's position, and this is one of them. They don't want to hear that it's not okay to have sex. They think it's recreational, it's casual, it's no big deal, it's normal, it's what everybody does. And they do not want to hear that it's not biblical, it's not okay that God doesn't want us to go there. They ignore the sociological uh, information that's out there, not even the spiritual stuff that says those who have sex and live together before they get married tend to have a higher percentage of divorce. That's a fact. And they ignore stuff like that, but they ignore the truth of the God's word and they're leaving the church by the tens of thousands. And this guy came to me, and, and he was not happy. And I'm thinking, well, here's this watershed moment. I guess we'll see how this all shakes out. And I knew that I could have gone back to the Scriptures, believe me. I could have gone back and said, here's what Jesus said about this. Here's what the Bible teaches about this. Here's what's clearly taught in the Word. But I realized at that moment that because he had a chip the size of a redwood tree on his shoulder, that going there wasn't really going to make any difference. And I just, once in a while, I, I, I had these brilliant God moments. And I looked him in the eye and I said, let me ask you a question. Are you a Christian? Are you a Christ follower? He said, yeah, of course I am. And then I, I very gently and very calmly said, well, then you need to understand that Jesus would never have sex outside of marriage and he doesn't want his followers to do so either. I sort of expected him to hit me or curse me and walk out. Actually, to my surprise, he responded very well. And he said, I never thought of it that way. But I say I'm a Jesus follower, and I can't, no, of course Jesus wouldn't do that. And of course Jesus doesn't want his followers to do that either. You know, maybe you've not figured this out yet, but our culture is normalizing the abnormal. I saw a program advertised coming out this fall. It's called The New Normal. And guess what it's all about? 
And I thought, man, our culture is so, it's like the frog in the kettle. It's desensitized us to things that are truth in the word of God, to sin. And my point is not just to beat anybody up again, and I know, I know this is a sticky wicket for some, but my point and what breaks my heart is that far too many, far too many in the church, in America, say they believe in God, that Jesus is their Lord. But it's hard, if not impossible, to see their faith in action. I want to finish with something that Jesus said about this problem found in Luke 6, 46 to 49. This problem was saying one thing and not, not living that out. And the subtitle of my Bible is The Wise and the Foolish Builders. Jesus is speaking here. And he's contrasting those who are wise and those who are foolish by his definition. Luke 6, 46 to 49. Here's the words of, here are the words of Jesus. So why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? Sounds to me like a provoking question, a challenging question. Why do you call me Lord? Why do you say, yeah, Jesus, you're a Lord, we believe in you. But Jesus, but you don't do what I say. I will show you what it's like when someone comes to me, listens to my teaching, and then follows it. It is like a person building a house and, who digs deep and lays a foundation on solid rock. When the floodwaters rise and break against that house, it stands firm because it is well built. But anyone who hears, listen to this, anyone who hears and doesn't obey, doesn't act, doesn't live it out, doesn't obey. It's like a person who builds a house without a foundation. And when the floods sweep down against that house, it will collapse into a heap of ruins. Jesus' point and mine is that our faith in God and our relationship with him should affect what we believe and ultimately what we do. God turned a harlot into a holy child of his. I love that God can take us no matter what we've done. And I sit before you as a pastor, you know, in my 20s, failed miserably, did a lot of stupid things. And since that time, I still make mis mistakes and, and blow it on a regular basis. But I love the fact that God shows us again and again and again in the scriptures that his specialty is taking broken, messed up, sinful people who have completely screwed their lives up. And he says, I can change that. I can change you. I can redeem that. It's never too late for you. And that's the grace of God. And that is a free gift of God. We can't ever earn his forgiveness. We're never going to get good enough to earn that from him. He just says, believe in me, and boom, it's yours. Here's the gift of life, eternal life. But I also love that in the scriptures, we have grace and we have truth. And if you've been around here any length of time, you know that we consistently try to marry both of these. It's not grace or truth. It's not just truth. In some churches, it's all about truth, and they beat the dickens out of people. They smack them around and religiously get all up and high and mighty. It's not just truth. It's not just grace. It's grace and truth. And what we see in this story of Rahab is grace and truth. This woman who didn't start so well, finished well, because she put her faith into action. So much so, guys, don't miss it, that when the walls of Jericho shook and collapsed, guess whose house, guess whose part of the wall was still standing? That's faith. If we will listen to God, if we will follow him, if we will embrace his grace, then when our walls shake and our floodwaters rise, the good news is we'll stand firm. And what I want to tell you today is that you can have a clean slate in Christ. 
If you're here today and you've not begun your life as a Christ follower, I don't care what you've done. Name it. Doesn't matter. I can show you worse people and worse situations in the Bible. Or I can at least match yours. If you want to have a clean slate, it doesn't start with you getting an eraser and trying to fix it all up. It starts with you coming to God and saying, oh God, I need a Savior. I need you. I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. And he will give you that gift of grace, that clean slate, that brand new life in him. If you've experienced that already, and you're sitting here today, and you know that Jesus has forgiven you of all your sins, and you still carry guilt and remorse and shame, you need to let that go and, and, and know that God is concerned about what you are becoming and who you are in him. But all of us, listen to me, all of us today need to make the same choice Rahab made, the choice to obey, the choice to do the right thing, the choice to demonstrate our faith in Almighty God. Bow your heads, let me pray for you. Father, I love the story of Rahab because it is a story of grace, but it's also a story of truth and faith. And I know, Lord, that we are in a culture and a world that rejects you, rejects truth, and some, Lord, who want to accept grace, but they don't want to accept the reality of what that's going to mean in their lives, how that will change them. And Lord, I pray for us today as a church, as, as people who um, call ourselves East Pointers and, and God's children, I pray for us, Lord, that we would be known as a place of grace and truth. I pray, Lord, for us as individuals that we would leave here free today from our past, knowing that we do not have to carry that ever. And I pray, Lord, that you would also motivate, encourage, and challenge us to demonstrate our faith to live as lights in the midst of a very dark world. I want to ask you to keep your head bowed and your eyes closed for a moment. If you're here today and you've not started your life as a Christ follower and you want that clean slate, and you're thinking, well, what do I got to do? Well, this is the only thing at this point that you really have to do is say yes to him. Now, there's a, that's the beginning of the journey. But to, to get that gift, to get that grace, to get the forgiveness of God, you don't have to earn it. You don't have to get all cleaned up and figure it all out. What you have to do is just come to him and say, God, I need you. I need your grace. I need your forgiveness, and I want it. I believe in you, and I give you my, all, my life. You surrender. You say yes to him. And if that's what you want, make this prayer. It's the choice you make in your heart that matters most. But just would you let my words right now, my simple prayer become your prayer. Father, I have failed. I've sinned. I've gone my own way. My, I, I don't even like to think about my slate. I know it's all marked up. But I thank you, Father, that I today realize something that I, 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 I haven't understood before. That you love me. And that you have offered me a clean slate. That you offered me forgiveness. And that you've offered me that gift of grace. And it seems too good to be true. But Jesus, right here, right now, I accept what you did for me on that cross. And I say yes to you. I surrender my past. I surrender all my marks, all my sin, everything, in fact, that I am and everything I hope to be, I surrender it all to you. And now my prayer is, God, help me to walk with you in faith. As you come by your Holy Spirit, change me from the inside out to become the man or the woman you want me to be. Now, if that's your heart, your desire, and your own way, just say, yes, Jesus, that's me. That's what I want. And the moment you make that choice, you begin that journey of faith. Lord, for those making that decision, show them what you've done. Show them what you want them to do. Show them what you're going to do in and through their lives now. Give them hope like they've never had before. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to uh, finish with one of, if not my most favorite song in the entire world, Grace Like Rain. Now I want to encourage you to sing this song.
with an awareness of the grace that God has given to you. Some of you are going to sing it today for the very first time. But let's give as we worship. Drop the communication card in there if you're our guest today. We'd love to connect with you. But put that in there. Let's worship and give. And I'll come back and wrap it up. The amazing grace of God. It's his goodness, his gift to us. Truth that he wants us to walk that out, to live that out, to demonstrate that grace and that goodness the way we live. Today, if you begin your life as a Christ follower, tell somebody. Let them know. We want to walk with you. Back on the tables, by the doors, there's a packet. Got a Bible and some material gets you starting your walk with Jesus. But the most important thing you need to do is connect with us, connect with people. Let us walk with you in this new journey of faith. You need help. We all do. If you need prayer, the prayer team will be down front. There's communable sides of the room. Pastor Tom will be down here if you want to get tickets to the Indian game. And Bryce will be in the lobby if you want to help with the venture land. But I want to finish with one last brief passage that uh, Cal actually read to me this morning. And it's awesome. From Psalm 103. Listen to these words. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Go live in that freedom if you're in relationship with Jesus. Live guilt-free. Live in that grace. And then walk it out in your life as you honor him. God bless you guys. Thanks for coming today. Thanks for coming.